The gospel reading uh, is the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The young one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all he had and set out for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him out to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring, or, put a fing, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he is, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because your, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Hello again, everyone. It's wonderful to be in worship with you. And uh, we are looking again at Luke 15. We've been sort of camping out in this one chapter, looking at these three parables for three weeks in a row, including this one. Uh, and then next week, we're going to use this last parable primarily as a sort of runway to look at the rest of the Bible and ask if these parables, these stories represent something foundational about the character of God, as we've been arguing, then we should find hints at these stories, um, allusions to these stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, that is, the Bible that Jesus read. Or are these stories innovations? Are they somewhat new and fresh interpretations of what has come before? And I think we'll find that the answer is both and. Shoot, I gave you the answer. There's no reason to come back now, but 
not either or, but both and. And even though, even with that spoiler, I hope you'll come back for the sequel, because it is going to, I think, tell us more about how we think about life here at InTown. This sort of idea is embedded in our first core value, that is lead with love, that love is the hermeneutic that we use to interpret Scripture. And it really gets at our philosophy of ministry and how we see the lens through which we see our city and the lens through which we see our calling in it. So maybe you can reflect upon that ahead of time, and I hope that you will return. Let's pray uh, as we once again encounter Jesus in this parable. Father God, we believe that you sent your Son to be our deliverer, our King, our teacher, the incarnation of your character and your love. Let us then listen to him this morning and come to know you, come to know ourselves, and come to know our world as we contemplate that which we believe lies at the very center of his life and teaching, the gospel. Let us experience something that few churches seem to be able to experience, that is a rootedness in the gospel that is so profound and so deep and so binding that our differences and disagreements seem to lose power, that they become less divisive and less significant to us, that the center would hold. Wherever we're coming from this morning, whatever our motivation is for being here, would you step into our stories in a new way this morning? Would you give us answers to the questions that baffle us? Would you comfort our pain? Would you meet us in our suffering? And would you guide each of us home to you? We pray that you would help those of us who belong to your church to live the kind of lives that go along with that knowledge that you are good and trustworthy and remaking our world into a place of forgiveness and of love. Father, we pray all of this in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Now, in chapter 15, we've seen the last couple of weeks that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are following Jesus around, and they're making trouble for Him. And He teaches three parables. And Luke, like the other Gospels, is sort of a a stylized, a creative history. So we don't know necessarily that Jesus said these in order in one setting. But according to Luke, it seems like he's trying to convey to us that you're not going to get this on the first pass. You're not going to get this fully just from the parable of the lost sheep or the lost coin, but maybe with the parable of the lost son, or maybe it'll take a hundred times, maybe it'll take a thousand times, because what Jesus is telling us is something that is so profound, nothing less than a whole new way to be human, a whole new way to be alive a whole new way to envision God and to live with one another in community. And this is at least different, if not entirely contrary, radically contrary to every idea about spirituality and politics and humanity, anthropology, and about God that was circulating around the Mediterranean basin at that time. And I would submit it's different than the moral systems that we inhabit, that we're familiar with. Even if we've been in church for a long time, what Jesus is saying retains its 
permission and its power to be radical in our lives. And we introduced this idea last week that this radical idea that is very innovative, that is very new, has been sort of hiding in plain sight in our Bibles, in Jesus' teaching for 2,000 years, that while some sages and mystics and prophets have seen it and have told us about it, some teachers have captured this idea, for the most part, the church has missed it or maybe intentionally ignored what Jesus is saying. And so while our society of modern Western secular people have largely walked away from this idea that the church has anything to say in their lives, that the church holds a pathway to truth and to healing, for the most part, they're rejecting us and not so much the gospel because for the most part, they haven't heard it very well at least. So what is this gospel? What is this message that's so radical? Well, in these stories, we don't see everything about Jesus. We don't see everything about the gospel, but there's something that is so foundational and necessary that if we miss it, we'll miss everything else. Now, Jesus has gotten in trouble for eating with sinners that we read about last week, that the Pharisees and teachers were mumbling and grumbling about him eating with sinners. And probably all of us have been there, right, where our friends talk down to us because of the friends that we choose to eat with in the cafeteria at the lunchroom. How could you? They're not us. They're not in our tribe. Or maybe worse, our parents. They look down on us and they criticize us because of the friends that we keep. And it feels terrible, doesn't it? So we can sympathize with Jesus. But what's this offense, really? Why are they so incensed because Jesus chooses to sit down at the table with people that are different? These Pharisees and teachers must have been nasty fellows, right? Brutish people. But really, they weren't. That's not why Luke lays this story down so that we can kind of look down our nose at them. They were pillars of the community. If you wanted to build a gathering of people, they were your people. They're little judgmental, perhaps. I mean, they're Pharisees after all. But we shouldn't be too quick to condemn them as if they were bad people. Instead, like most moralistic, judgmental people, they take a kernel of the truth and act as if that represents all of it. They stretch it too far to where it breaks. These were people, in fact, who desperately wanted to know God They wanted to create a community that was holy so that when he showed up, he could sort of be proud of them and say, this is what I longed for. This is what I was looking for. But over and over, you see, Israel, the nation that they served, had been overrun by foreign armies over and over and over for hundreds of years. And their question was, why? Why does this keep happening? And just as Most of us do when calamity comes. They chose to narrate this by other people. It must be those people. Those sinners are the reason that things are going so poorly for us, and God keeps judging us. It sounds very 2018, doesn't it? Natural disasters, loss of national ethos, it's the fault of those people. And this sort of scapegoating is not only very 
binary, very us and them, but it's very bad theology. And it lets those who are doing the scapegoating off very easily. We don't have to take responsibility for anything if it's those people's fault. And then Jesus comes along, supposedly one of them. He's a rabbi, a holy man, a teacher, but something feels off. And maybe they can't put their finger on it at first, but they follow him around. They ask him questions. They try to get to the bottom of, who are you and how are you different than us? And then how can we go about eliminating you? You see, his actions, who he chooses to eat with, who he chooses as friends, it calls their easy scapegoating into question. He befriends and eats with the very people that are supposedly responsible for their national downfall. And remember, eating in Luke's context is not just grabbing a bite to eat, but it's a very intentional, very public act, very political act, because Jesus, in sitting down with these people, is saying, you're okay with me. I don't see you in that binary way. The way that the Pharisees and tax collectors have sorted people out from between insider and outsider, unclean and clean, righteous and sinner, is shown to be wrong, at least as Jesus parses out the truth. And this is a volatile act. This is a dangerous act on Jesus' part. Because he's saying by his actions that the religious systems that walls people off, the righteous people, from the supposedly sinful people and keeps them at a distance. This is not a community that God wants anything to do with. But it's so much more, you see, than just a critique of this corrupt religious system. And thankfully, there's good news here. You see, there's gospel here. Because if we'll listen, Jesus is opening up a radical new pathway to experience God, a radical new pathway to be human and to relate to one another. And in these parables, he's telling us over and over that we don't find God by our righteousness. We don't go up to Him by our law-keeping, but He comes down to us in the person of His Son. He comes down to us with grace. He comes, in fact, to find us when we're lost. Now, there's three episodes of something that have been lost, that has been lost, and then something that's being restored. And the first two that we looked at the last couple of weeks, the sheep and the coin are lost, and they're returned to the owner. And then in the third, the son comes home, or in a sense, returns to the father. And in each, there's a homecoming. There's a restoration. There's a, a reestablishment of some relationship that has been broken. There's a return to proper belonging, if you will. And then there's a celebration. There's a party that happens at the end of each of these parallels, parables. The shepherd finds the sheep, the woman finds the coin, and they invite the whole community to come and celebrate with them. And what Jesus says is this celebration mirrors the rejoicing in heaven of the angels 
And the shepherd and the woman are, of course, stand-ins for God. And the coin and the sheep are stand-ins, of course, for us. Get this. Are you, are you listening? Are you making the connections? That God is reunited with something that is so profoundly precious to Him that He throws a party. And we're meant to see that that's us. We're meant to see that when we return home, when God finds us, there is rejoicing in heaven. It's astonishing. Do we get this? Do you recognize that there's a celebration over your homecoming? And do you celebrate when other people get grace? You see, there's a twist in the third parable. The father throws a party, right, because the son comes home. And this isn't just his neighbor come on over for some beers. This is a celebration. This is a feast. But there's someone who doesn't want to come. And that's the elder brother. The elder brother is none too happy about his younger brother's return. And this is where Jesus really turns the knife in this insider-outsider, exclusivistic, binary thinking. What's the brother mad at? Why is he not in a, a party mood? Well, I think we can all agree that the younger brother has been a total weasel, right? He's not a likable person, and all of us can understand the other elder brother's frustration. That's his inheritance, after all, that's been spent, and now he has less. And the younger brother has done something culturally shocking and totally presumptive, and he not only gets away with it, but he gets a party. In a patriarchal world, you see, the father was the center of everything. Cultural life was built upon respect to the father. And if you didn't respect your father, you didn't deserve a party. Everyone could agree upon that. In fact, you likely deserve something else, either exile or being taken out in the middle of the road and stoned. That was how seriously they took respect to elders in this community. What did the younger brother do? Well, he asked for half of his father's inheritance, which was not his right to ask for. The elder brother got to ask. And importantly, it was only after what happened. How do we get an inheritance? Someone dies, right? And so the younger brother is telling the dad, Pop, I'm going to be better off if you go ahead and die. I need half my money now. That's what was being equated, and I'm out of here. (laughs) This was a bratty, mic drop, worst of sinner type of moment. He then spends all his money, and he comes home, and the offended party runs out to greet him. The offended party doesn't run out with a sword or with stones or with a lecture or with punishment. He runs out with a robe, and with a kiss. And this isn't what normally happens. This isn't what was expected to happen. This isn't sort of the quid pro quo 
relationship that civic society was based upon. And the elder brother is totally offended and embarrassed by his father's actions. This is completely inappropriate. He's not following the script that we've lived by. The father, friends, remember God, the father in this parable. He breaks the rules of the community. He goes against conventional wisdom. He denies his own role in upkeeping the boundaries and the borders of the community. He denies his responsibility to uphold religious and societal norms in order to what? In order to embrace his son. He chooses relationship over rules. Yeah, that's huge. That is so big, and it's so different than how we think about things. It's so different than how we think about life in the church. He chooses, God chooses relationship over rule-keeping, even if they're His own. You see, God, the one holding all the cards, the one with the moral high ground, the one who not only can but would be expected to close the door on this bratty son, He runs and he puts a robe around him. He embraces and kisses him. Friends, do you know this God? Do you know the God who breaks the rules in order to include you? Well, the elder brother sure didn't. He sees his father's behavior and it doesn't make him happy He doesn't think, oh, good, when I mess up, that will be me. Maybe he thinks, well, if it's that easy, (laughs) if I can just return home having done whatever I wanted to, why have I worked so hard? Why have I done my duty all these many years so hard trying to please you? Why indeed? So he starts reading his resume to his father. And in what has got to be one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture, he says, all of these years, Dad, I've been slaving for you. You see how he sees the relationship? I mean, that's the real issue, right? Don't you now, we wanted the father to punch the younger son in the face. Now, don't we want him to just just rear back and let this guy have it? Because how disrespectful and how unloving. Dad, I've been slaving. All this good work, me sticking around, me not going to play with the other kids, the other hellions, the reason I've done that has been to kind of keep you placated, and it's felt all this time like slavery. Ah, what would it feel like to hear that as a parent? He's worse sort of than the brat who ran off with all the money. But the father doesn't do that. He doesn't punch him. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't say, get out of my house, you ingrate. But he says, all that I've had, all that I have is still yours. 
it's still yours in spite of your sin, which you really haven't even seen. You see, I think what Jesus is telling us is that grace flows downhill to the misbehaving young brother, but it also flows uphill to the well-behaved elder brother. Grace flows downhill to those who are lost and they know it, and grace flows uphill to those of us who are lost and we don't know it. This guy has been laboring under the idea that to behave is to belong, and to misbehave is to be rejected. And I think if we were to peel back our psychology, our spirituality at at least a little bit, we'd probably find some of that lurking. Even if you've been around the church for a long time, that's probably still present. He is talking about Jesus's and upending virtually every moral context that we've ever inhabited, that we've ever experienced. Perhaps your standing in your family was felt tenuous, and so you worked real hard. You made the grades, you made the teams, you came home before curfew, you stayed out of trouble to assure your belonging. Or maybe you got to your professional world and you got a job that your colleagues didn't think you were prepared for or good enough for or qualified for, and now you spend extra time at the office. You overwork in order to do what? To prove them wrong. Not to serve the interests of the company, but to make yourself look good and to prove yourself to others. Or maybe you're from an immigrant family and you feel the stares on the street. You feel that questioning suspicion. Did they get in like I did? Did they work hard like I did? Do they really belong? You see, family systems, religious systems, government systems, professional systems, family systems, they all love elder brothers because elder brothers get stuff done, and they provide the virtue signaling that keeps the community operating and keeps the tribe connected and keeps the boundaries secure. Elder brothers are good at preserving the tribe's identity, and we all long for tribes of comfort. And this sort of environment, I have to be honest with you, as a pastor, this sort of environment isn't just tolerated in churches. Often it's celebrated, it's encouraged because it's orderly and it's predictable and it's very clean. But the problem is there's little room for failures. There's little room for misfits. It's highly efficient, and it's very comfortable for those who have learned to play by the rules, but it's not very loving, is it? The elder brother has obeyed, but not out of love. He's followed the rules, but not on his father's behalf. He's followed the rules to get something for himself, and so when he encounters love, he sulks. He pouts. He doesn't want to party. I wonder, what would we have done in that situation? 
Imagine you in that scenario. Your younger sibling has done something terrible, and they get parental embrace while you feel like you've worked so hard and nothing really comes your way. What would you have done in that situation? When we see someone getting something they don't deserve, someone that needs punishment in our mind, but they get grace. And what would we have done in the Father's shoes? Because really, those are the shoes that we most like to wear, right? God's shoes. What do we do in His situation? Well, I think we can hypothetically say what we would do by asking ourselves now, do people feel embraced by you? Or do they have to work for it? Are there people in your life right now that are dying to have you smile upon them? Do we, church, do we feel like a place of unmitigated joy and welcome? Or do people have to work for our favor? Do they have to change to belong? When the prodigal son left, the elder brother stayed. He kept working. He was faithful. He did his duty. He could be out partying like his brother. He could be living it up. Instead, he's at home slaving away. And don't you know, he can't wait till the younger brother gets home because he knows what will happen. If his father even lets him in the door, he'll be shoveling crap in the horse stable before the end of the day. No other option is on the table, but that's not how it works with Jesus, you see. The father doesn't give the son a lecture, but he gives him a kiss. He gives him a robe and a party. The younger brother experiences resurrection when he probably expected, we know he expected, rejection. While the elder brother misses the gospel because he's still balancing the books. He can't live in a world where the books aren't balanced. And so he misses the joy of the kingdom. Can you live in that sort of world? Can you live in a world, can you live in a church where the books aren't always balanced? There's a better way. It's scary and it's uncomfortable. And it's disconcerting, especially for those of us who have worked really hard and we've obeyed the rules and we've got in through the right doors. But it's beautiful. And it's not an adjustment. It's not an addition. It's not a minor correction to all of the moral systems that we tend to inhabit. inhabit. It's not just an addendum to conventional wisdom, but it's an overthrow. It's an insurrection against moral accounting. And on some days, you see, you're the younger brother running away from him, and you don't want anything to do with God. And on other days, maybe in the same day, you're the elder brother who is counting your good deeds and pouting about grace. But you see, on the cross, Jesus runs to you. God runs to you. And now you get to embrace, you get to wear Jesus' robe, and you get to experience His kiss wherever you've come from and wherever you are right now.
would you take that robe on yourself? Because He offers it, and He does it independent of your merit and your worth and how bad and twisted your story has been. Let's pray. Father God, we, we want to be these kind of people, the kinds of people that would rejoice over the gospel, the kinds of people that would rejoice over grace and give it to others, the kinds of people that are self-reflective enough to see our younger brother tendencies and to see our elder brother tendencies and to do our best to address those and to walk out of them, but at the same time to know that we are free and liberated by the work of grace and mercy on the cross. Jesus, we thank You for mounting that cross for us with great joy, and we pray that we would take it as our own. Both the criticism that is intrinsic to it, that we couldn't get to You on our own, but also the great liberation that in You we've been resurrected. I pray that we would live in that tension this week, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.